Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a glorious summer morning here in the capital is Campbell McPherson. Campbell is an international business advisor on change strategy and leadership. He is also a keynote speaker, executive coach, lecturer and author of the 2018 Business Book of the Year. Uh, Campbell, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure, Scott. Um, Thank you for, for, uh, for inviting me and welcome to everyone listening. Yes, of course. It certainly is a lovely day for it as well. And a big day here in England um, because it's July the 19th. It's the day that um, all of the COVID-19 restrictions have been lifted, but there's still that sense that we're not quite out of the woods with this yet. And I think we should start by addressing that elephant in the room of the COVID Mm -hmm. situation, because what has become so abundantly clear, of course, Campbell, during the pandemic all over the globe is that business has had to pivot and adapt and innovate at an unprecedented scale in order to survive. And if your business cannot change swiftly and indeed easily, it's ultimately going to struggle. Now, in your view, of course, um, you made this very clear in the piece that you put together for CEO Today magazine. And culture is everything in helping a business adapt to these sorts of challenges. And culture ultimately comes down to people. So how important is it as business leaders that we make sure that we bring in the right people for our businesses and that we instill a culture that is going to ultimately lead to that success and that flexibility? It is It is literally business critical. Culture really is everything, as the CEO of IBM once said decades ago, and it's still it's still uh, true today. It's, it's definitely, definitely true today, particularly in the last 18 months of, of COVID. It's a very timely day to be to be talking to you because um, back in the first and second waves of COVID in the UK, there was a, a charity called Anxiety UK, and they reported a surge in anxiety levels when the lockdown was extended, if you remember, all the way back to April 2020, mm-hmm. which seems like an eon ago. But they also reported a similar surge when the lockdown restrictions were lifted in May of last year. So today, we, we are going to, uh, there are a number of people and a large proportion of the population and of our workforce who will be going undergoing a lot of anxiety today because restrictions are being lifted and particularly because we, we are now the world's leader in, um, uh, in, uh, in, in COVID-19 new cases. People are going to be very, very anxious. And, and I think that's one of the big lessons that leaders have learned over the last 18 months in that anxiety is real. And actually, that sounds a little silly, but a lot of the leaders I've met, particularly in financial services, haven't really felt anxiety before. But during the last 18 months, they've felt it themselves. They've had times when they've been anxious. And suddenly they've realized that anxiety is something that, that all of their people have felt. And it's critical to, to the well-being of their, of their employees and the well-being of their business to help people through anxiety, which all comes down to leading and embracing change in, in mm-hmm. my book. And just how important is mental health and well-being in business, do you feel, both in terms of safeguarding that of our colleagues, but also our own as business leaders? Because when you are sucked into survival mode, as it were, in keeping your business mm-hmm. running, it's easy to sort of neglect your own well-being when you're at the top, isn't it? You know, Scott, that's a really good point. And it's something I didn't cover in the article uh, for um, uh, the CEO today. It was, it was, it was, it's a really, really good point because, because we often don't take time out, particularly if we're actually CEOs. We, we don't take time out for our own well-being or even our own leadership development, to be perfectly honest. We spend a lot of time on developing others to be better leaders, but often we don't stand back and help ourselves, uh, particularly over the last 18 months. As I said, leaders have felt anxiety themselves, and the leaders that have reached out to get help with their personal anxiety, their personal mental well-being, uh, are those that are really coming through uh, the latest phase of, of this COVID uh, experience uh, in far better shape, and therefore, if they're in better shape, so will their um, so will their companies be. 
Exactly. And um, one thing, of course, that is sort of a common factor in times of economic hardship as well is the fact that a lot of new businesses are almost born out of crises like a phoenix from the flames. And we're seeing that with COVID as well. And um, it's a very well known and used quote, isn't it, that you should surround yourself with people who are better than you when sort of starting a business. And for those budding entrepreneurs out there, some of them who may be well tuning into this podcast, of course, that probably is one of the best bits of advice that you can give to someone like that, isn't it? Make sure that you surround really yourself. Is, yeah. I completely agree with that. But that, And that requires confidence. I've seen in so many different clients that those leaders, whether they be CEOs or COOs or HR directors who don't have the, the internal confidence of their own value, of their own ability, end up surrounding themselves with people who aren't as good as themselves. And therefore, they don't deliver and they end up being replaced by people who are confident enough to build leadership teams, whether that be at the top of the tree or in, in, at the departmental level or at any level in an organization that is full of people who have wonderful skills that offset their own uh, weakness of another member of the team member. And that's one of the, the key things that I say in the article, that building an extraordinary leadership team at any level of an organization uh, is critical to actually drive the culture because culture starts at the top, but also to drive the results. You, you can't possibly build uh, a successful business if you don't have a leadership team uh, that is full of people who are better than you are at, at certain things. And and as the CEO, it's your role to to bring all these wonderfully talented people together and, and get them to deliver as one. And I suppose um, in those periods of time where we do sort of get things wrong and we have those setbacks, the key is yeah. to learn from it, isn't it? Um, and in some ways, do you think we have to fail in order to learn sometimes and subsequently succeed? Well, uh, that's that's exactly uh, what what so many people have said uh, over the years. In fact, um, an interesting thing: the word failure is, is is I have a love hate relationship with it because failure seems a little bit terminal. Oh, I failed. So there was one company, there was Carlson, who who banned the word failure from their lexicon, and they said you can only use the word glitch. Now it's a little bit cheesy, but I get what they were trying to do in the in that a glitch is something that you can learn from, recover from, and, and, and move on, where a failure seems to be a bit of a dead end. But yes, the only way to learn is to fail. Every single successful entrepreneur has, uh, uh, has said this, you know, Branson, uh, Bezos, um, Musk, all of the astronaut entrepreneurs have all come out and said that's the way we learn because we only learn through failures. And we know that. Every time we make a mistake, we've got a chance to learn. We learn very little uh, when things go well. So, yeah, failure is to be embraced. And that's part of the culture that you need in any sort of business um, is, is to make sure that failure, as they say, is a learning opportunity, not, not a, um, a career-limiting one. Exactly right. And uh, just for those who may not have read, of course, the article that you put together for CEO today, if we do want to instill a culture that is ready for and adaptable to change, what are some of the steps that we can implement to do that just briefly? So the first one is gain strategic clarity. I'll go through the headlines and then I'll just talk briefly on each one. Yes, of course. First, gain strategic clarity. Your your strategic core is what you need and what your team needs and what all of your all of your people need. The second step is to build an extraordinary leadership team that we touched on briefly there. The third step to building a culture that is that is that is change ready. Or, or avoiding a change-resistant culture, as, as the title says, is to ensure your leaders are able to lead change. We talk about that at, at length. The fourth one is to ensure the flip side, that your people are able to embrace change because, well, leadership is all about leading change because if you're not leading change, you're not leading anything. You're just you're really just trying to manage the status quo, which we've learned it no longer exists. But if your people aren't ready, willing, and able to embrace change, don't have the mindset to to, to embrace changes and and thrive through uncertainty, then the business won't succeed either. And the fifth one is is about not letting bureaucracy get in the way. I've seen so many organizations that build processes and bureaucracy that are actually work against what the leaders are, are trying to achieve. So and that's what you you were talking about before about learning from failure, failing fast and celebrating successful change and celebrating efforts. Uh, and, and learning from it. So they're, they're the five key steps. Yes, exactly right. Um, a lot of it is about learning, as we've discussed. Um, but yeah. however, um, 
can some people in a sense be maybe born with certain sort of strong leadership qualities or do you think it's a learning curve for everyone? It's both. It's both. People are but like everyone's born with certain skills. They can run faster. They're you know, better at yoga. They're better at writing. They're better, whatever it happens to be. But everyone can improve, and that goes with leadership as well. Some people, and in fact, some people, just like sports people, who are born with a wonderful talent, let's say for you know football, or in this case, leadership, and don't put the effort in, they they never become great leaders. They never become extraordinary leaders because they don't work at it. So you you can be born with certain talents, um, but everyone needs to uh, to work at developing it. It's just a skill like any other. Mm. Exactly. I mean, it's one thing being born with a skill, isn't it? But it's another actually taking the time to hone that skill, develop mm. it, and really sort of so break like the David, barriers. David Beckham, you know, he was the last to train, last uh, always the last of training. He was forever practicing. He, was, he didn't become brilliant at at spot kicks um, for just because with a talent. He had a talent, but boy, he worked at it. Yeah. Exactly right. Um, and also, Campbell, uh, one thing we should touch on is the fact that um, you are, of course, a published author. We've uh, mentioned that sort of briefly already. Um, you wrote the 2018 Business Book of the Year. And in August of this year, of course, your next book titled You Part Two is due for release, which is all about thriving in the second part of your life, as you say. And mm. uh, without sort of giving too much away, um, what sort of hints and tips can we sort of expect to appear there? And um, are some of those sort of based around very personal experiences, some of this? advice very much so uh, we're, we're very excited by this 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 book is actually the, the third there was the power to change was launched last year so the, the change catalyst was about leading change and yes i was stunned when it won the business book of the year uh, three years back and and then the power to change came out last year and that's about embracing change so there's the two workshops i run in, in books and then the third one is fascinating it's, it's co-authored by my wife jane who's a yoga teacher and, and yoga therapist. Mm. And it's called You Part Two, Thriving in the Second Half of Your Life. And Hashtag are publishing that worldwide next month. And in fact, the, uh, the Telegraph's coming out to, uh, uh, to take photos of us for a, for a double-page special, which will be so that's very exciting. It, it's, all, it, it's based around our personal experience, but also the experience of a lot of people who age 45 plus and suddenly go, oh my gosh, you know, life's half over. What do I want to do in the second? What do I not want to do in the second? Um, and how do I thrive in a world that seems to be more ageist uh, every year and yet growing older every year? So it covers a lot of topics, embracing change. It covers My favorite chapter is menopause versus menopause, <laughs> <laughs> where, where my wife and I discuss the menopause and the much paler male midlife crisis. But it's, uh, it, 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 it's a really good read and it's really entertaining to be perfectly honest it also goes into money because we need to be able to fund the second half as well so it's, mm. a, it's a wonderful way to start thinking about uh, the second half and it's really for organisations it's also for organisations who want to look after their 45 plus employees as Aviva does brilliantly and also for organisations trying to to attract and add more value to 45 plus customers who of course uh, own 75% of the world's private wealth and um, and are fastest growing consumers on the planet. So um, no, we've got high hopes for them. We're very excited. Yeah, sounds really exciting. And like I say, for the listeners, that is titled You Part 2 and it's coming out in August. So do keep an eye out uh, for that, for sure. Um, and also as well, I can imagine that there may be an emphasis on work-life balance as part of all of that. And that's become especially relevant during the pandemic, hasn't it, with all of these changes to our working practices we've seen? It's been fascinating, hasn't it? It's a, When I run my workshops, then became webinars. So I was running um, Embracing Change uh, workshops for one of the leading insurers here. And during during one of the uh, the, the morning uh, webinars on Embracing Change, there was a, one of the delegates had her little um, cocker spaniel sitting on her lap the entire three and a half hours of, of the webinar because, there's no, because the dog had been used to her being at home so much, she just refused to leave her side. So she sat there on the lap and, and you could see her face looking at all the different different people on the screen and had a lovely time. I think she learned a lot about embracing change for a cocker spaniel. But it was it, it's that sort of thing that I think was fantastic, mm. that people became more human. There were some positives for the last 18 months. Not many, I admit, but that was one, that people became more human and opened up their personal lives as to, to work because we had no choice. Um, others had awful personal lives, and that was shocking, but... but um, a lot of people, the, the, 
the the importance of good work life balance, the importance of bringing you to work, not just a version of you to work. I think we've learnt a lot from that. We'll see what yeah. happens in the next in the next six months whether that continues, but um, let's hope it does. Yeah, for sure. We've learnt so much about keeping communication channels open and authenticity during this time. I think that's very, very right. And uh, just sort of going back to the books um, just for a moment, Campbell, one thing I wanted to ask you about being, of course, a successful sort of uh, business leader as you are is um, some of your personal inspirations throughout your career. And we can be inspired by people. We can be inspired by experiences we've had. But what are some of the sort of most telling ones for you in your life, would you say? There was was one... That's a that's a great question. There was there was one leader who really inspired me, and 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 I, I feel as a, as a beacon to to leaders everywhere. And in fact, I don't think anyone that I've been led by um, uh, fits up to works up to him, lives up to to uh, to what um, David was. He he was the senior partner worldwide for Anderson Consulting, who. Uh, when I moved over to the UK from Australia 22 years ago, I was working directly for him on a client, and he just trusted you. So he just he 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 knew what my strengths and weaknesses were, what my hot buttons were. He, he knew how to motivate me, but most importantly, is he trusted me. He said, "This is the outcome we need to achieve here. Go do it, Cam. Give me a call and for anything, any support you need." And it was as simple as that. Interestingly, he was a teacher before he uh, joined Anderson Consulting all those uh, years before, and and he really stands out because the people that he valued, he then trusted and, and got out of their way. And I thought that was one of the best lessons in leadership that I've that I've ever had, to be honest. Yeah, it's fantastic. And um, would you say as well that the career you had in the Royal Australian Air Force also helped shape your own personal leadership style somewhat? Well, in a very comical way, yes, because I still have mm. the record for being the worst pilot ever to make it through to death. I was a hopeless pilot. So I um, I joined the Air Force straight from school, and I'm still not quite sure why. And I, I did a, a, a degree and then um, uh, learned how to fly. But my eyes deteriorated, so I had to memorize the eye chart to keep flying, which was all a little bit hilarious back in the 1980s. So the, the stories I could tell you about me trying to fly or even worth trying to land um, would really need to be done over, over a beer or a glass of red. But <laughs> what I learned from that, to be honest, is that you can't be good at everything. And even though the 17- and 18-year-old Campbell thought he was going to be the next Tom Cruise, it turned out that was, that was not going to be. So at 21, I went, okay, so I'm not going to be a pilot. Um, after I resigned my... my instructor actually said oh thank goodness for that so um so that that was how good i was so i thought what i learned was you can't be good at everything and then my career sequence of jobs let's call it that way it just went from one job to another uh in so many fascinating areas and it was all about change so i've you know i've been hr director i've been at a big financial services firm i've been strategy director of zurich for for um, the Emerging Markets Division. I've been marketing director when we founded Virgin Wines. I've been so many different things. And what I learned was, why not give something a go mm. and and do your best and you can learn from it. So my whole sequence of careers has been completely about change since 1984 when I realized I was a terrible pilot. And I suppose before sort of accepting that perseverance was a big keyword there and that's one great big lesson we can take away from that but also as we've talked about throughout this whole podcast embrace change try new things don't be afraid of change basically it's it's to be yeah, welcomed it, embrace is a great word and it's and, and actually in in new part two we we talk about um radical acceptance so it's not just accepting when change happens for you because that's a bit a bit passive and you can feel your shoulders drop. It's radically accepting it. It's like, okay, this has happened. What am I now going to do about it? Um, where are the positives? What does it mean? And getting on the front foot and and that can be difficult. Uh, and in in the power to change, in the power to change, which is last year's book, I I talk through ways that you can get yourself to that point. But that's what we need to be able to do. Even the worst changes, which will take some time to to readjust to, you need to get yourself to a point where you look at yourself in the mirror and say, okay, this has happened, it's not fair, Um, I've been a victim of this, but what am I now going to do about it? And that's radical acceptance. And, and, And it's not possible all the time, but it is possible to get yourself to that point 
every time. It just it can take time to do. It can, exactly. And I think in the context of um, this conversation now with the wider COVID situation, we've all had to face up to a period of change. Lives have changed, jobs have changed, our circumstances have changed for sure. And uh, it's such a shame, I have to say, Campbell, that um, our time on the show is drawing to a close because I could genuinely speak about this uh, matter all day. But just before we do uh, wrap up, um, as we sort of enter another period of change, as hopefully we can start to embrace sort of the post-social restrictions world, fingers crossed, um, what are some of your priorities going to be over the next 12 months as hopefully we can leave the restrictions behind in the UK? And indeed, what should the priorities of business be in your view as we hopefully can embrace a period of recovery now? Okay, well, first, I'd like to say that, that we're, we're not, change hasn't finished. Mm. Um, the, even the, the, there's a probability, whether it's high, low or, or not, of more restrictions to come in the future. And when that happens, we need, or if that happens, we need to make sure that we proactively accept that because there's nothing that we can actually do about it. As the political leaders, you know, could, but, but, but we can't. So we're going to have to accept whatever happens. It might be, we might reach herd immunity. We might have to lock down again. We might, you know, it, there are all sorts of things beyond our control. There'll probably be new variants we'll have to cope with. We're going to have to get booster shots. You know, this is not going to go away anytime soon. And, and, and as long as we accept that and then work within it, what can business do? What business needs to do is to shore up its finances, which most businesses have been doing for the last 18 months. They need to make sure they find recurring revenue streams because then you can be like Soho House, who not only um, was uh, survived through the last 18 months, but actually IPO'd on the New York Stock Exchange last week because more than 25% of the revenues comes from recurring revenues from subscriptions. We, we need to make sure we don't drop the ball on the well-being of our people. We need to help them to be able to embrace the changes that are coming up uh, over, over the next 18 months and not pretend that it's all going to be fine and the virus has suddenly disappeared now because you know there are going to be changes that are happening over the next 18 months. Um, and then lastly, I, I go back to basics. If you haven't already as a, as a leader and firm up your strategic core, you need to know what you need to be really clear on why your business exists and for whom, what makes you special, and what the strengths and weaknesses and the magic within your business actually is. And with that strategic core, you can and and a, and a culture that embraces change, uh, then I then you will be successful. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed. And I think it's the next natural step, isn't it? Building on the trust and the transparency that we've seen build up over the last few months, because albeit it's been such a tragic and challenging time for so many, I think we've seen a real resilience within business and a real fortitude and a real strengthening of inter-business relationships. And that's something that we can really build on. That's a great word. Resilience is a, is a, is a fantastic word. And it is, I think we've built resilience Let's not pretend we have finished building them, uh, because it, 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 it all it requires constant attention. Um, but it's exciting, and um, and I'm very optimistic about about the future from here. There'll be bumps along the road, but mm. um, but it's all about you know accepting change. Exactly, and it is changing times ahead, and let's indeed see um, how things do transpire, because there is still a little bit of uncertainty there, and albeit we are always will be. Yeah. And albeit, unfortunately, uh, Cam, we are out of time on the, today's program. I'd actually love uh, to welcome you back onto the show with us at some point in the future, just to sort of gauge how things are still continuing to change and what has yeah, indeed changed them in between our discussions, because um, it's been a real eye-opening experience welcoming you onto the program. And I'm sure the listeners also share that sentiment as well. I've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, Cam, and uh, just before we do uh, depart, please do as well to continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because um, we're not quite out of the woods yet, as we've established, but I think better times are certainly ahead of us, fingers crossed. It was a pleasure to welcome Campbell McPherson onto today's podcast, and I do hope that you all thoroughly enjoyed a compelling interview. And of course, here on the Leaders' Council podcast, we enjoy bringing forward a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership, and therefore, Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett will be joining us next on the programme. He'll be discussing his take on the events of the last 15 or 16 months with the COVID-19 situation and his hopes for the weeks ahead of us as we move out of lockdown. That will be coming up on the programme now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. 
Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. 
Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, mm. but actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would people criticize the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately 
we've got uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did 
from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.